in a way that we can't begin to articulate and certainly can't begin to imagine. You who are perfectly holy reached out to us the way you did. And we don't pretend to understand this, but we're so thankful that you did. That holy, perfect God said, I'm, I'm going to make a way and I'm going to send my son. And I'm going to reveal myself to them through the creation and through the word of God and through the person of Christ who came and lived and, and died and rose from the dead. Thank you so much for this. And as we open your word now, would you allow us to worship you by correctly expositing it, by doing it in a way that honors you. But for each of us, may we allow it to sink deep in a, in a molding way into our life as an act of worship. And we do this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Why am I here? Why am I taking space up on this planet? and using up oxygen? I think this is a great question to ask as we start a new church year, as we start a new year in a sense as individuals. Why am I here? Why do I take up space on this planet? Hugh Moorhead wrote a book in the latter part of the 20th century and he asked 250 of the leading thinkers of the 20th century to respond to this question, what is the meaning of life? And it's kind of a depressing book because most of them had no idea. A number of them actually wrote back to him and said, hey, if you figure it out, would you write back to us and let us know? Because we're not really sure. Isaac Asimov, for example, said, as far as I can see, there is no purpose. Albert Ellis, and a psychologist, wrote, life has no intrinsic meaning. Then listen, this is a real pearl from a guy named Michael Anania. He wrote, I don't want to retreat into the justly despised positism, but to question the meaning of life proposes its own answer. Life, if you think of it as an assertion of meaning and process, always exceeds assigned meaning. To offer a parody of technical language, the set of all meanings is included in life, which is an additional meaning, so expands the set by a hyposet and so forth. So any statement... Any such question expands the frame exponentially. What I'm saying in a nutshell is the meaning in life is meaning. I'm so glad I read that because it just totally cleans it up for me. Makes it really clear. What happens when we become untethered from a sense of identity and a sense of meaning and a sense of purpose and a sense of being able to answer the question, why am I here? I would argue nothing good happens. And this is deeply important on a personal level, but also on a church level. Why are we here as a church? That book by Moorhead has been out of print for a while already, but the number one best-selling book, I always find it interesting when the New York Times puts out their best-selling book list and so forth, that the, num the actual number one book that's sold in the world every year by a large margin is never included on that list. And of course, that's the word of God, by a large margin. 
And in the Word of God, we begin to discover everything we know, need to know about who we are and why we're here. So let me read to you some very well-known verses. If you have your Bible or your device, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. And we're going to focus this morning really on verse 10. Ephesians is about, oh, I don't know how far, maybe 60% through the New Testament. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. And Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, he writes to us, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It's on the screen behind me, verse 10. I'd like us to read that verse together because it's at the heart of answering the question, why I'm here. Let's read it together. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is a promise from the God who created all of the universe. And the promise is this. You are not a cosmic accident. Which is what many people might suggest to us that we are. You are not a cosmic accident. In fact, you are a piece of work by God. Created by God. And I'd like us to say that together. Let's say together, I'm not a cosmic accident. I'm a piece of work by God. Let's say it together. I am not a cosmic accident. I'm a piece of work by God. Now, I want you to turn to the person beside you and say, you are a real piece of work by God. You are a real piece of work by God. How were we made? You were custom made by the God that created all the universe. Custom made by God in Christ. John Orkberg says this. This is really cool. Listen to this. He says, we were designed by God. We were made to live in God, by God, through God. And then after that, we were made to work for God. This is at the part of why we are here. We were designed by God. We were made to live in God, by God, through God. And then after that, we were made to work for God. For God. It addresses the question of why I am here. What is my purpose in life? I am here for something bigger than me. This is what I hear all the 20-somethings particularly are asking this great question. Why am I here? And most of them might say to us, I want to be here for something bigger than me. Something that has eternity stamped on it. Something that is not self-centered. And the God of the Bible says, I have that for you. Something bigger than you, something eternal, something not selfish. God created within you this desire to be significant. And that he has a master plan for you. And the thing that's really cool is one day, the God who conceived of and created the Milky Way who conceived of and created all of the galaxies and all of the stars and every black hole and the volcanoes on our planet and the beautiful sunset that we enjoy, the trees, 
The mountains, I was out in the mountains yesterday. They're so spectacular. The prairies, which I love. The God that conceived of and created all those things. One day, that same God thought about something else to create, and that something was you. Your body, your unique giftedness, your personality, your sense of humor, all custom designed by the God of the universe. This is why he says, in Christ, we are God, it's in verse 10, in Christ, we are God's workmanship. You are not a cosmic accident. You are here because the God of the universe created you and ordained you. And I would argue from the opening chapters of Scripture, this brought great joy to God. He creates it all, and every time he goes, this is good, this is good, this is good. When he created man and woman... Man and woman. He said, this is very good. It brought, it brought him great joy when he created you. He, the David writes in the Psalms, listen to what he says. Here's part of God's plan for you in Psalm 139. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. It addresses the why am I here question, that he has a plan for you, a plan full of purpose, a plan that has eternity stepped uh, stamped on it. And this is why when we compare ourselves to others, which we frequently do, or when we curse ourselves, which we frequently do, when we devalue ourselves, this is extremely destructive. Augustine, guy from around the fourth century, long time ago, wrote, God loves each of us as if they're was only one of us, and there is nothing we can do. There's nothing we can do. Augustine's saying, listen, and I've said this to you before, there's nothing you can do to make God love you any more or any less than perfectly. That's how God loves. And it has nothing to do with what you do. He has set his affection on you, not because you're clever or talented or worthy or good, he just, and it's hard for us as human beings to get this, because this is so contrary to how we typically operate. He just decided to do it. And this is what grace is. This is what grace is. And that's what verses 8 and 9, the direct context of verse 10, really says. He says, listen, relationship with God is available to each person that chooses to receive it, not because they deserve it, certainly not because they can work for it. It's impossible to work for it. It's simply by owning and recognizing your own sinfulness in comparison to the holy God that we were singing about earlier. That compared to him, there is no comparison. And this is at the heart of why Jesus came, to purchase forgiveness for us, to extend grace to us so that we could ask for our sin to be forgiven based on his sacrifice and that we could then surrender our life to him in its entirety. 
And then after that, God has this wonderful plan in verse 10, because we're his workmanship in Christ, that he wants to fulfill, that has eternity stamped on it. This is an incredible privilege. So not only did God custom design us and offer salvation to us, after this salvation takes root, we're made to have relationship with him, it says in verse 10, because we were created in Christ Jesus. In the parts of the New Testament that the Apostle Paul wrote, he wrote the majority of the 27 letters, books of the New Testament. He wrote the majority of it. Paul himself, about 160 times, references the fact that you are in Christ. You are in Christ. And he's really saying, listen, the most important thing about you is that Christ can live in us if we'll let him. And we can live in him, and then he'll grow us up. He says in the, the letter to the, book, to the church at Colossae in chapter 1, he says, To them God has chosen to make known the glorious riches of this mystery. There's mystery attached to all this, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so God's constantly at work within us to grow us into the person he wants us to be, to grow us into his workmanship. You know, when you, when you read through the whole 66 books of Scripture, what we call the canon of Scripture, the measuring read of Scripture. You see all these different characters and stories, but they all point in the same direction, in, in a uniform way, uniform way. But at the same time, there's this custom fitting for each of us within the big plan of God. And so really, our response to why am I here is to simply say, God I am in. This is what he's looking for. He never forces or compels this stuff. He invites this stuff. He's looking for this voluntary surrender where I say, God, I am in. I want to go on this adventure with you. How do you want to shape me? How do you want me to grow? And I know we, we talked, began talking about this last week, and, and, and this is kind of a, a different kind of series. Last week, this week, and the next three weeks, they kind of work together, but they're not an integrated, totally type of thing. So last week, we talked about the spirit-filled life, that this is the normal Christian life, the, the life that Jesus wants for every one of his followers, without exception, we come to Christ once, it has long-term effect, and then we live on an ongoing daily basis in the empowerment of the filling of the Spirit. That none of these things are really possible that the book talks about apart from the Spirit-filled life. Today we're talking about why we're here, and then the next three weeks we're going to talk about neighboring and caring about the things that God cares about very deeply, neighboring. And how God wants our life to ripple out and affect others. Because everyone wants this meaning in life. And yet, vast number... If you were to drill down into so many people's lives, vast numbers of people, if they had the courage to be really honest, they would say, I'm deeply disillusioned with the constant drum and theme of this culture, which is preoccupation with self. I'm tired, if they were really vulnerable and expressing what was really in their heart, they would say, I'm deeply tired of the resulting byproduct of that, which is an emptiness, which is a void inside. 
I want to let go of this preoccupation with self and say, God, who do you want me to be? Who do you want me to touch? How do you want me to ripple out and touch that person and that person and that person in a way that changes eternity? I want to be able to lay down my life. I want to be on your page and I want to live according to your agenda. And they may not be able to articulate it, perhaps kind of like I just did, but this is kind of floating around in their heart. And so they prayerfully one day will come to the place where I'm signing up for the adventure, God. Wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to do, whoever you want me to talk to, my answer is yes. And so like I said, we talked about how this is possible through the surrendered, spirit-filled life when we're filled with the Spirit and, and we just say every day, Here, this day is yours, would you fill me? Would you empower me to live the holy life that you call me to constantly? This is a constant theme throughout the books of the Bible, a holy life and then a life of effective service. I can't do either of those in my own strength. Never was intended for me to do those things in my own strength. And then... As I said, we're going to talk about neighboring in the next few weeks. Who's my neighbor? How can I impact my neighbor? Uh, The people that are wrestling with this stuff I'm talking about. Now, as I say that, it's reality check time. Funny, you know, (laughs) what I mean by that is I was chatting with my friend Bob earlier this week. Bob's a pastor up at Quill Lake. And I, I said this to him, and we both had a little bit of a chuckle. I said, you know, I was thinking about the book talking about the Bible, and I said, you know, is there anywhere in the Bible where God gives someone an easy job? And we both laughed and said, we can't think of a single place. Any place in the Bible where God says, I want you to do this, and the person responds with, well, that's a snap, God, I can handle that, no problemo. There's nowhere in the book that it's like that. Typically, the response runs along the line like, whoa, that's way beyond me. This is exactly where God wants us to be, recognizing that it's way beyond us and that if he doesn't come through, we're in big trouble. It's also, then I said a second thing to Bob. I said, you know, it's also interesting to me that you can read through the whole 27 books of the New Testament and there isn't one place where it says, and the disciples were mightily bored. And we both laughed about that one as well. There's nowhere where it says the disciples were mightily bored. And you know, boredom is this significant problem in our society, which is rather ironic because we live in a time in history, we live in a culture of unprecedented resources and opportunities. Think about it. If you know history at all, you know there's never been a time in history where there's this level of opportunity and this level of resources, and yet people are facing this crushing sense of boredom. In fact, psychologists have not too long ago created what they call the boredom proneness scale. And I keep meeting people that are missing out on what God created them to do. It's not that I have it all figured out, and sometimes I really succumb to some of these things I'm talking to you about, but I keep coming across people who are trying to fill up their lives with comfort or success or entertainment or dot, dot, dot. And they are finding, as God intended for them to find out, that a long-term focus on any of those things to try to address the question of why I'm here is absolutely boring, is absolutely empty, is absolutely carnal, and it makes them cranky. 
This is not God's intent for our life. He wants something so much more for us. He wants us to make a big splash, like the screens you've been seeing as I've been talking, where the pebble, you know, the traditional pebble in the pond that ripples out. This is why he says in chapter 2 of 10, and 10, you are God's workmanship created, custom created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God planned in advance for us to do. So where is the Spirit of God prompting us to sacrifice, to give, and to serve? Where is the need that God has uniquely called you to address? And certainly there's lots of opportunities in the community. We have so many people in our church, I hear about them all the time, serving out in the community, um, serving you know, with food for learning, as we have a feeding program in a number of schools here in the city, at the soup kitchen, and so many other places I could talk to you about, or internally here in the church, um, you know, where there's just an opportunity to say, I'm going to love students, and I'm going to just model the things of Jesus, and there's opportunities to serve uh, internally that way, or I'm going to try to open up the Word of God in Kids Zone to, to young disciples in Christ, or I'm going to help check them in, or something like that, or I'm going to serve on the worship team, or I'm going to serve in the tech areas, or I'm going to help lead or be part of hosting a discipleship group. I want my life to matter out in the community and inside the church community as well. I read recently something by one of our Alliance female staff pastors, not a staff pastor here, but somewhere else. Her name is Heather Donnelly, and she said this. I thought it was quite cool. We are not called to lend our lives to Jesus, but to lay down our lives to him. We're not called to lend our lives to Jesus, but to lay down our lives to him. And so if you kind of go at this in a half-hearted or in a conditional manner, you will end up empty and bored and typically cranky. But when we lay down our lives to Jesus, where we say, uh, you know, my, my chief goal is to honor you, to acknowledge you as holy, to celebrate you, God, and then I'm going to serve that which is most important to you, people. This leads to an incredibly full life. It leads to a life of purpose. It leads to a life of significance. If you're struggling with this stuff, listen to what I'm saying. It leads to a life that can answer the question why I'm here. Mother Teresa died a few years ago. I can't remember how many. She wrote this kind of famous little statement. Let me read it to you. It's called, Do It Anyways. People are often unreasonable, illogical, and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you are kind, people may accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you are successful, you'll win some false friends and some true enemies. Succeed anyway. If you are honest and frank, people may cheat you. Be honest and frank anyway. When you spend years building, someone could destroy it overnight. Build anyway. If you find serenity and happiness, they may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today, people will often forget tomorrow. Do good anyway. Give the world the best you have, and it may never be enough. Give the world the best you've got anyway. You see, in the final analysis, it's not between, it, it is between you and God, rather. It was never between you and them anyway. Our mission statement or vision statement um, at UDAC, you see it on the wall, the two walls behind me. 
It says we're here to exalt Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. This is the most important thing. It's the most important question any human being ever answers. Is Jesus going to be the Savior and Lord of my life, yes or no? There's no question more important in that than that in the entire world. And so we said that's got to be first and foremost. Therefore, it says in his power. And that's speaking about the spirit-filled life. This is just lifted exactly, totally out of Scripture. Therefore, in his power. That none of this stuff is meant to be lived, as I said, apart from the filling of the Spirit. Therefore, in his power while demonstrating his love. Again, lifted right from Scripture. How will they know we're followers of Jesus? By this outrageous love that we display. I was just chatting with someone last night. And this family has just invested in some people in our church. And it's just outrageous love. It's outrageous love. It's love that is, is just so different in our world. In a way that's only explained because Jesus has changed some lives. While demonstrating his love, we will reach, in other words, point people to Jesus, teach, help them grow up in Jesus, and equip, get them ready to serve as every believer is called to do. And then in parallel, we will reach, teach, and equip to know, parallel, love, parallel, serve. So you often hear us using that expression, we want to be people who know, love, and serve God. Again, lifted out of Scripture, deeply rooted in Scripture, deeply rooted in saying, Jesus, would you lead us as a church? Here's the thing. Those are just words and empty rhetoric until it begins to flavor my life. It's just the thing people do. They write a mission vision statement, but it means nothing and it's just a waste of time if it doesn't flavor my life. When I was getting this little talk ready, I was sitting in my office and I was thinking, like I sometimes do, um, and it, just pictures of people came to mind fulfilling this message in our church. Not perfect people, but transformed people who are in Christ. Servants who have really got some grips on why they are here. They get it. And they're living these God-honoring lives investing in the lives of our students. I see these folks that work with our students, with our youth. I see people who are opening God's up, word up to the kids right now like they're doing in rooms all around this facility in Kids Zone. I see people making breakfast at the soup kitchen. I was talking with one of our seniors just before we started this service. And they were there Friday morning at 6 a.m. fixing breakfast for some homeless people here in the city. What a cool thing to do. What a cool thing to do. Or quietly visiting shut-ins in our church, which people do. Passionate about preparing the next generation to be devoted followers of Christ. Business owners, I know a number of them in our church, who said, I'm going to try to make great profits, and there's nothing wrong with making a good and a healthy and a legal profit. Go for it. But they're going to make their business more about mission than profit. They've determined to make it 
more about mission than profit? Are the people that, and I often see them in here, organizing the food and taking the food over to the different schools in our community where feeding programs are going on? Or the many hours that are spent, you know how many hours were spent by this team and the people up there and the production people that are up behind us here, there's five or six of them up there too, preparing this worship service so we could worship together. And I see those faces, and I don't think they're bored. They don't look too bored to me. (laughs) They don't look too cranky to me. Because God has prepared them for a life, I think, of eternal significance, something bigger than them. And this is what UDAC, University Drive Alliance Church, wants to be about. And I believe this is what we want to be about individually as well. And so if you're feeling like you have a lack of significance in life, and life's kind of boring, you might want to talk to God about that. I'm going to invite the worship team to come now because we want to be a church who knows, loves, and serves God.